Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number 10. National Novel Writing Month uh, to kind of follow up on last week's interview with uh, Ashley Carlson and kind of talk about my experiences with Nano and then um, I'm going to read you a little bit more from my uh, from my memoir uh, in episode seven the first solo cast I read about um, my childhood a little bit and about writing uh, today I'll read a little bit about teaching I think as far as NaNoWriMo goes, uh, just to refresh your memory if you don't already know, it's uh, National Novel Writing Month. Uh, Every November, a group of people around the world get together and uh, virtually get together and try to write 50,000 words during the month of November. The idea is to write a novel in a month, basically. Uh, it's a it's a fairly lofty goal, and uh, I think it's aimed at people who had never written a novel before. And uh, you know, it's kind of a it's nice because it gives you a community and it gives you uh, a way to kind of hold yourself accountable a little bit, and it also gives you an excuse to just write quickly without caring as much about the finished pro- product. And you know, you have one goal: fifty thousand words. And I, I think you know a lot of people really. Uh, take to the to this model really well and uh, you know if you listen back to episode nine with Ashley Carlson she said it changed her life you know she's a she's a writer now it's it's you know she's found her passion that's what she wants to do which is uh, pretty amazing if you think about it so um, if you haven't started yet I mean today's the seventh of November you can still you can still start you know you can still do it if you if you want to I think it's a really great uh program really really cool thing to do uh I have yet to finish Nanorimo <laughs> I have tried um two or three times i think it's i think twice um the the first time I should have looked this up before I started recording I suppose but uh, the the first time was many years ago and uh, I was a graduate student and I decided to you know to write a novel and what I ended up with was a um, the beginning of a novel about uh, some professors at a at a kind of mid level college. And, um, who have, it's, you know, it's kind of a campus comedy in the, maybe in the vein of like a Richard Russo sort of thing. Um, you know, write what you know about, right? So <laughs> that's what I knew about at the time. Uh, I did just look it up in uh, November, 2011, uh, was when I did that one. So it's not, I can't be right. 
I'm not sure if that's right, but um, but I did try in 2011. Apparently, uh, something called the Little Things, uh, this literary fiction. Isn't it funny? I have no, I have no recollection of exactly what that was, and I wrote four thousand nine hundred and five words on it. <laughs> um, that must be the one I'm talking about, though. Uh, but anyway, that one was a, um, I have it listed as literary fiction, but yeah, it's kind of a campus comedy, kind of a couple of professors who, you know, go through probably stereotypical challenges of, of being a professor, uh, stuff like that. Uh, I didn't make it very far on that one, 4,905 words according to this, which is, which is not very much, but, um, but it gave me a sense of, of, NaNoWriMo. And then the the next time I tried it was last year, actually. And uh, last year I started a kind of a mystery thriller kind of thing. And uh, I got a little further in that one, uh, almost 10,000 words, right? <laughs> so not, not, not quite, not quite 50, but I was much more organized about that one. I uh, decided to write this uh kind of thriller mystery sort of thing about a down and out former cop who, um, you know, turned detective who has a premonition about a young woman. And, uh, he kind of becomes obsessed looking for her and, uh, he does find her cause he has a premonition about her murder that she's going to be murdered. And, uh, a lot of it, a lot of the beginning of the novel revolves around him being really kind of, obsessed but also really kind of down and out you know he his marriage is falling apart he, he he's not working very much he's living in a crappy apartment in detroit um the, the dude's about he's pretty much at the bottom you know to a large extent and he's, he's going even further uh with this obsession and uh when he finds her he tries to protect her but from what and that's kind of the the setup. And that one I actually outlined the entire novel. Uh, I did what they call beats, you know, the, uh, the all the all the plot points, and I just filled the beats in as I went. And uh, I got through, you know, like I said, about almost ten thousand words on that one. And then I kind of, you know, it kind of petered out a little bit, um, as as it does. Uh, one of the problems I have with um, NaNoWriMo in general is that it's at the possibly the very worst time for somebody who teaches, especially for someone who teaches in higher ed. And I'm not making excuses. It's just, it's just kind of a fact of the matter is that, you know, November is when we're ramping up for finals and for final papers. I've got a bunch of grading to do it, you know, for the end of the semester. And, uh, it's, it's always, it's always, really hectic in November for, for, uh, for, for professors and probably for school teachers as well. Um, again, it's not an excuse. I can wake up a half hour early and write, you know, almost a thousand words every day. So, uh, it's just, you know, one of those, one of those things, uh, this particular novel, you know, what happened with this one was it, I was drawing on some pretty personal experiences for parts of it. 
And it really started uh, getting inside me <laughs> in a way, which uh, I think is probably good. You know, I was probably working through some problems that I needed to work through, maybe um, reliving some things that I had kind of forgotten about. But um, it really started to disturb me a little bit <laughs> because uh, there's a little bit of a twist in the in the plot in the end. And, and uh, maybe I didn't want to identify too closely with one of the characters, but uh, because of that twist, I don't know. But uh, it really it really was uh, I was in a really funky place for those first couple of weeks in November last year, uh, partly because of writing this thing. Uh, I am definitely going to go back to that novel. And I'm going to finish it. Uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be pretty good, I think. You know, I was rereading some of it this morning while I prepared for the podcast, and uh, and some of the language is pretty good, and I think the setups the setups a uh, decent setup. So I, I think I'm going to go back to that uh, once I'm done with the projects I'm I'm doing right now. So that's that's that. Um, this year. This year, I, I came into November knowing that finishing 50,000 words in the month of November was going to be very, very difficult. Um, in October, I wrote, I don't know how much I wrote in October, but um, I have a spreadsheet here somewhere, but um, I probably wrote about twenty or 30,000 words in October, and I wasn't trying to reach 50. Um, when I'm in my stride, I write about a thousand words a day. I was writing about twelve hundred a day for most of October, which gets you to about thirty thousand words anyway. Um, they're not all in the same project, but it's something. But I knew coming into November that I have a huge stack of grading. I kind of overcommitted myself this semester. I have uh, I have four classes at. At the university, and I, I have a lot of tutoring that I do too. I tutor high school kids, and um, it's just been really—I've just been really busy. I knew it was going to be tough, so um, I didn't even start NaNoWriMo. Uh, if I were going to do it, I would work on a series of short stories stories that I've been working on, which I don't know if that's cheating, <laughs> right? Because it's National Novel Writing Month, not National Short Story Writing Month. But um, I have a series of stor- short stories that are going to be, they're part of the same narrative arc in a way. Um, they're part of the same universe. So you might consider them a novel. Um, they're going to be about 5,000 words a piece. So I figured if I, if I finish 10 of them, that's what I would do if I wrote, cause I don't want to stop those and write a novel cause I'm in the middle of those. Um, you will never see those short stories or if you do, you won't know. Cause I'm gonna, if I, I'm going to publish them under a pen name, I will not tell you the pen name. <laughs> so sorry. It's just one of those things, but, um, I can keep you updated on my progress on them. If you like, <laughs> if you, if you like, yeah. um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that. So those, uh, those I might, I might continue and I, and I might still try to do them under nano because I was looking up the stats, uh, earlier and, you know, to finish N- NaNoWriMo, you have to write an average of 1,667 words a day through the month of November, which has um, 30 days, right? Yeah, there are 30 days in November. Um, so you have to write 1,667 words every day to finish a novel in November. 
which, you know, depending on where you are in life, that could be a lot. That could seem like a lot. And to do it every day is is kind of is kind of tough. Uh, it might also seem, you know, it depends on, on your writing uh, history. You know, it might not be that much. But for me, uh, I genuinely write. I've been writing between 1,000 and 1,200 words a day. Uh, to me, to write 1,000 words takes, depending on what I'm writing, takes between half an hour and an hour. Uh, if I spend an entire hour writing, I'm looking at 1,200 to 1,500 maybe, I think. And again, depending on what I'm writing. So to, to write that much would take a little over an hour a day for me, which, you know, if you think about it, an hour a day, what's that, you know? We spend an hour a day watching TV. You know, you can you can just stop watching TV or stop you know doing one activity, and you can do that. Um, if you want more inspiration on that, go back to last week. <laughs> Ashley Carlson has she's really inspirational, and she really uh, um, talks about how you kind of have to put a lot of stuff on hold to do it, but it's it's worthwhile. But I was looking at the numbers, and um, as of today, November seventh. Uh, in order to finish 50,000 words, I would have to write on average 2,084 words per day. Uh, I thought the number would be higher, but 2,084, so um, we'll call it 2,100. Uh, that's doable. You know, um, it's definitely doable. I'd have to spend maybe an hour and a half a day writing. It's hard to imagine finding that time in some ways. And in other ways, waking up an hour early is not that big a deal. You know, or writing uh, after class and before in after class, but before tutoring, I could do that. You know, if you're working a regular nine to five sort of job, you know, waking up a half hour early and working a half hour after work, that sort of thing, it's definitely doable. Um, so maybe I think the for me the the pivotal point will be uh, this weekend if. Uh, if I really want to do this, what I would do is sit down on Saturday, write between three and 5,000 words, and then write another 5,000 on Sunday. If I can manage that, that gets the average down, you know, what, what I need for November down, and I can do that. But this year, I'm not I'm not as wrapped up in, in NaNoWriMo as, as I have been in other, um, in other years. I, just, I do have goals, and there's things I want to get done, and there are things I want to publish, and there, and I need to get this memoir edited, et cetera, et cetera. So I have other goals that are that kind of supersede that in a, in a certain way. But I just love the, I love the challenge, and I like going on the discussion boards at nanorimo.org and seeing what people are doing and, and looking at people's updates and uh, going on Twitter and searching for the hashtag nanorimo and seeing, uh, you know, just kind of, almost living vicariously about being part of that community of people who are like, let's do this thing. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, uh, it's really nice. So that's my NaNoWriMo update progress <laughs> or lack of progress, I guess. So, uh, if you're doing NaNoWriMo, I would love to hear from you. Um, next week, I think I have somebody lined up who is, who is, uh, who has finished it four times. So that that should be an interesting interview um, if we can get it set up. Um, if you're doing it now, I would love to hear about your progress, what you're working on. If you've done it in the past, uh, put a put a comment in the show notes at ericmarshall.net slash wet. It's uh, Eric with a K, Marshall with two L's, dot net slash wet. And uh, find this episode, episode 10, and leave a comment. Let us know how you're doing. I would uh, I would be happy to uh, to hear about that. It sounds sounds fun. 
this is the part of the podcast where I usually put the music in and take a break and uh, and then move into the interview. Um, what we're going to do now is I'm going to read a little bit from uh, from my memoir, and uh, I think that'll be about it. Uh, what I'm going to read today is I should mention the music <laughs> last week. I you know I listened back to the solo cast episode number seven and i didn't i didn't mean to keep the music on for so long underneath me um i meant to have it fit out within like i don't know 10 or 15 seconds and i I must have pressed the wrong button in the editing software and so the music just kind of stays on for like five minutes and uh, i listened to it on the podcast feed and uh it it was kind of cool i i you know i didn't mind it you know it wasn't it wasn't that distracting i I don't think it was i don't know you guys can tell me what you think um because i don't mind playing around with music and sound effects and stuff i think uh you know i'm learning this audio editing thing and i'm not too bad at it i guess um if i do say so myself but uh it's kind of fun to play with that uh you know i'm not going to do it for this one i don't think but um but anyway, that was a total accident to do that. It wasn't a stylistic choice or anything. So, at any rate, uh, the music, yes, yes, yes. So, um, last time I read from the memoir, I read about uh, my lifelong dream from childhood up of being a writer. Uh, I talked a little bit about entering graduate school and some of the um, assumptions I had in graduate school the the assumptions of being around creative people and being creative and getting a job and stuff like that and um today i'm going to talk a little bit about the the teaching aspect of uh of graduate school uh i'm staying away from some of the super personal stuff right now um although there's a lot of it in the memoir uh why i'm doing that i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe I'm still a little sensitive about it. I don't know, but um, but I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the the beginnings of of teaching. Uh, just as prelude, I uh, worked at a software company for about a year after my undergraduate, um, which I which is also in the memoir. I worked for about a year in the software company, and then I uh, worked for a year teaching high school. And the high school teaching experience was. Uh, it had its rewards, it had its upside, but it was uh, very painful in a lot of ways as well. Um, a lot of it having to do with um, the other adults in the building, let's put it that way. And uh, so I left that to go to graduate school. I got a call from uh, Bob Burgoyne, who is my uh, dissertation advisor and who was my film professor in undergrad. And I got a phone call and he said there was this teaching assistantship opening up and uh Asked if I wanted it, I said yes, and that's that's how I ended up in the uh, in the Wayne State graduate program. Uh, at the time, I was dating a woman named Lisa, and uh, she was a elementary school teacher. I was a high school teacher, and then things shifted a lot uh, during these times. So that's that's where I'm beginning right now. At the beginning of my appointment as a graduate teaching assistant, I moved to Rochester Hills with Lisa. She was still teaching elementary school in Oxford, Michigan, but I was going to be working in Detroit. Rochester Hills was a compromise, as we would each have about an hour commute to work, maybe a little less if traffic was light. We had been together around four years, uh, through both of our last years as undergraduates, through my time at the software company, and through both of our first years of teaching. 
It was a good relationship. She's a solid woman with good values and a commitment to her career. With my new job, however, we started to grow apart. As wonderful as she was, I was getting bored. As I explored my new job, I wanted to explore other avenues as well. There's an orientation for a new teaching assistance where people got acquainted and went over various rules and responsibilities. Mostly it was a meet and greet and welcome to the department sort of thing. Uh, As everyone went around the room introducing themselves, a woman across the room mentioned that she had majored in French as an undergraduate. During a break, I sauntered over to talk to her, me wearing my used car salesman suit, as she later called it, and her wearing a tight blouse over large breasts and a little decorative scarf around her long neck. Hi, I'm Eric. I'm Heather. So, I heard you're a French major. Yes, at University of Wisconsin. I just moved to Michigan, and I'm considering graduate school. I'm not a TA, but I was invited here to meet people and see if I might like it. We hit it off right away. I immediately thought she was pretty. One of her green hazel eyes had an irregular quality, giving her a mysterious, exotic air. Her laugh filled the room. She piqued my interest, but I didn't think much more about her after that. At the time, I was still in a long-term relationship, still living far away from campus, and just trying to figure out where this life was taking me. That's a little bit of foreshadowing, in case you couldn't figure that out. Um, okay. Compared to teaching high school, teaching at the college level is easy. You didn't have to talk to parents. The hours are generally better than teaching high school, and students are marginally better engaged. The other thing about teaching at the college level is that it's often secondary to other things like research or writing a dissertation or going out. Many teachers at research institutions are not there to teach and have never had any training. At Wayne State, we had a a day-long seminar on how to teach a composition class. Many of the people there either had no interest in teaching or saw it as a necessary evil to what they really wanted to do. Many were understandably scared. Blankless. This is a clean podcast, but not a clean memoir. Um, It is strange that teaching would be such an afterthought in an institution whose main objective is to teach tens of thousands of students a year. I believe this is similar in most universities whose front-facing position is that of quality education, but whose primary agenda may be research. I, however, had training and experience, and I actually enjoy teaching. My training for high school teaching, as well as my teaching experience, far eclipsed that of much of my cohort. cohort. So I was ready to enter the university classroom to a much greater degree than many in the same department. My ideal situation would be roughly half teaching and writing. I like both, but I'm rare. During my time as a graduate teaching assistant, I taught two classes per semester, which really isn't that much. It's enough to get in the way of writing the dissertation or enough to justify complaining about not getting any writing done while you're downing more cheap beer with your fellow GTAs. We got paid a salary or stipend and our classes were covered. We had a union which helped limit how much they could make us teach. Life was good. Housing is cheap in Detroit, so you didn't need to you didn't need much to live on. Plus, there were student loans to keep you afloat. Ah, student loans. How glorious they are when you get them. A big, fat check to be used however you pleased. And don't worry, you'll be able to pay them back when you get that dream job after graduation. Lovely. At some point, the GTA money runs out. I don't know if this happens everywhere, but at Wayne State, you get a certain number of years of funding, and then you're done. Nobody I know has ever finished during the allotted time. 
For me, it was five years, but that was coming in without a master's degree, so I had to make up for that time as well. Much of the graduate teaching assistant time was coursework, qualifying exam, and prospectus exam, the latter two of which took much longer than I had anticipated. When Wayne State cut me off, they graciously offered me some classes as an adjunct. What this meant was that I could teach roughly the same number of classes in the same classrooms with the same numbers of students. Everything would be the same, except for a few details. For example, I was no longer covered under the GEOC, the Graduate Employees Union, nor any other union for that matter. What about health benefits I had would disappear. My pay would drop significantly. I would move from an office with two other people to one with a dozen. My mailbox would be moved to the far corner. I would not get priority of any kind for classes in my field. In fact, I would have to grovel every semester even more than usual to get classes at all. Although I was doing the same work, my status fell immediately. I could feel it in the halls when I walked into my new office. I could sense it when I tried to access the computer lab and realize I needed new authorization for the card reader at the door. I knew it when I went to the library and no longer had research-level borrowing privileges. Like so many others, my new designation in the class schedule was staff. Still the naive optimist, I figured this would only last a year or two. I was ABD, all but dissertation, and it wouldn't take that long to finish my dissertation. Of course, I was wrong in so many ways. To make ends meet, I started working at other colleges as an adjunct, which meant I was teaching more and driving more. I ended up teaching composition at Wayne State instead of film for years. Before I knew it, I was teaching far more and at more places than usual, cutting into dissertation writing time. One semester, I was teaching two sections of intermediate composition. That's that same course I had taken as an undergrad, the one about which I remember only two things, that the instructor sounded like Kermit the Frog and beautiful blonde Jenny. Um, One of the classes was on Wednesday night and one was on Thursday. Uh, I decided that I wanted to do something drastically different, and I didn't really care too much about my job at this point. (laughs) I had been an adjunct for a while, and it was seeming less and less worth the time and effort. My initial idea was to have a class centered around getting me fired. I didn't think I could really be fired, but it was worth a shot. I would just be terrible for a few weeks, pissing off the students, and then after the deadline for them getting all their money back, I would let them in on the joke and tell them I wanted wanted them to write letters to my chair. Imagining him getting 48 separate letters complaining about me put a huge smile on my face. Um, I wanted them to write op-ed pieces for the school newspaper or even one of the local weeklies and so on. The idea was to help them put their feelings into words and to create writing that was genuine and practical. I decided before the semester began that this is a stupid, reckless idea and made a new syllabus that gave students as much choice as possible. I was using a reader that I liked, and I had the students choose which essays to read and what types of essays to write. I also had them decide their criteria for the papers. The questions they needed to ask were, what do they want to learn, and how could I measure that? The results were astounding and confusing, as each class took the project in vastly different directions. The Wednesday class was slow to get it, but once they did, they hated it. Not all of them, but a few very vocal students— I had one student in particular post all kinds of vehement protests on the listserv. Yeah, it was a long time ago. We were using listserv. I wish I could find those emails. 
<laughs> Imagine my chagrin when one day I see an email to the list saying I should be, I should be making all the decisions because that's what I get paid for and that they deserve more and so on. Uh, another student, uh, an education student no less, spoke up about how refreshing the class was and how she was so tired of the same boring classes where they had to read an essay and write an essay about it. The class was a bit divided between these two viewpoints, with most probably not caring at all. Uh, the next class period after that email was tense, as you might imagine. We talked it out and we stayed on course. At the end, the dissenting student changed his tune, saying he now saw what I was doing and appreciated it. I don't know if he was being sincere or just sucking up. In the Thursday class, the students took to the structure with enthusiasm. One guy, in response to a Paulo Freire essay they read in the beginning of the semester, ended up writing nearly 20 pages about capitalism and libertarianism and how they fit into higher ed. I would see him for years after that at street fairs and concerts, and he would introduce me as his communist professor and buy me a drink. The <laughs> thing is, I never would have assigned a 20-page paper. I found that without strict guidelines, many students did much more work than I would have assigned. In the end, I hope these students got something out of that class that they took with them into whatever lives they created for themselves. Uh, like in many classes, they probably didn't. I was happy to have broken the mold for once, and I think we all benefited from that. I'm jumping around a lot in the uh, memoir. I'm skipping a lot of the personal stuff, as I told you earlier, and uh, unfortunately that foreshadowing from earlier will not be satisfied in this podcast. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, and I want to preface this next section by saying that uh, when I wrote it, I wrote it maybe a year ago, maybe less, but um, my situation has changed a little bit, and I'm actually pretty happy right now uh, with my with the position I'm in at, at the University of Michigan Dearborn. Um, so some of the some of what you're going to hear here is kind of it, it sounds pretty negative, and, and in some ways it is, and, but in a lot of ways I. My my attitude and my perspective have changed a, a little bit, at least for the time being. Um, partly because as I talk about being an adjunct, uh, the position I'm in now is not an adjunct position. It's uh, technically I'm a lecturer at U of M Dearborn, which um, there there is some difference between the two. Uh, it's still a you know contingent situation where I'm not guaranteed classes um, from semester to semester and. Um, you know, there are some, there are some similarities to the adjunct situation, but it's, was better for sure. I have benefits for example. Um, but anyway, I'm going to read a little bit about, uh, adjuncting in, in general. I'm not against working as an adjunct. As I've already said, I, it can be rewarding. What I am against is working as an adjunct out of necessity. In order to make this work, the adjunct position has to be something extra, something we do in addition to something else. This changes the power balance from one of supplication to one of equal footing. Um, I mean, I do have some ingrained problems with authority. I confer it on people or institutions that maybe don't already have it, and then I treat them as if they are persecuting me. So that, that might be a personal thing for me. Um, I don't like to say no to adjuncting for several reasons. One, I like the people I work with and the people giving me the jobs. In most places, the people above me are quite nice. They're not evil penny pinchers out to destroy my life or enslave me. They're, they're part of an institution that is participating in an economy that ends up alienating the vast majority of its workers. 
but they themselves are not in positions that make those decisions. They're working with what they've got, and as we all are. And I found that most of them care on a personal level, even as they participate in a system that shafts its workers. Number two, I fear they won't ask me again. I'm afraid that if I turn down a class, next time a class is available, they won't call or they'll assume I don't like teaching that particular class or at that time of day. They might think I'm not serious, not hungry enough, and that other people might deserve it more. Number three, I need the money and I'm afraid of going broke. I don't make a lot of money. (laughs) Not all of my work is adjunct work, but enough is that it's hard to say no for fear of being broke later, which leads me to sometimes taking on more than I like. I've stayed in the adjunct position for so long long, in part because I don't know what else to do. Year after year, I accept positions because I don't have anything else going on except the tutoring. And I can usually do both. I'm comfortable teaching and some income, I figure, is better than none. Uh, My attitude has gotten worse as the years go by. I am more lax in my teaching, slower to grade, more likely to swear in class or do other unorthodox things. I have no fear of getting fired, in part because I know I'm a good teacher working for next to nothing, so they don't want to get rid of me. I also know it would be easy to get another adjunct job. So the check versus no check, semester to semester, keeps me taking on more teaching at less pay than I want, hoping that something else will come along. There is an opportunity cost, though. I interviewed for a job last year, and they would have wanted me to start right away. I told them I couldn't because I was in the middle of a semester. I suppose I could have just walked away, stranding the students and administration. We don't sign contracts at that school, after all. But I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to be treated that way. So I told them I could work limited hours for two months and then full-time, regular hours after that. Of course, I didn't get the job. Had I been willing to walk away, I might still be in that job with good pay and benefits. If I hadn't taken classes that semester, there would have been no conflict whatsoever. Time spent teaching as an adjunct takes away from time doing other things like writing, job seeking, professional development, or any other number of things. Uh, The semester I wrote this, I was teaching six classes at three schools. At Henry Ford Community College, I was teaching three at about $1,800 per semester each. At Oakland Community College, I had one class at about $1,600 per semester. At UM Dearborn, I had two at about $3,000 apiece. All told, that's about $13,000 for one semester of what would be considered full-time work at a community college. Most professors at a community college teach five classes per semester for a starting salary of around $50,000 plus benefits. A tenure-track professor at a, univers- at a university will teach two or three per semester. I'm teaching more than a full-time community college professor for about half the salary minus benefits, and I'm not the only one. Adjuncts make up, a, a, make up about 80% of the workforce. Why should colleges hire people at better wages when they have an abundance of qualified, experienced teachers who will work for nothing? There are times when I wonder if I'm part of the problem, if my continued willingness to work at these abysmal levels allows colleges to keep up these vile practices. If everybody in my position simply refused to work for such low wages, they would have to pay more, right? This is a form of self, self-loathing, I know that, of not only taking what they're giving, but of blaming myself for letting the system continue as is. When it comes down to it, I have to make the decision for myself. A strong union is one way to raise salaries and give protections, but it comes down to the individual to decide if she wants to work under the conditions presented. Even with unions, a lot of places pay dirt. Uh, the important thing for a college teacher is to have a plan B. 
Plan B, Alt-Ack, Post-Ack. Nobody can survive on the pay of the adjunct gig. So in this case, Plan B refers to an alternate career path if, when, one doesn't find a tenure-track job, but also alternate streams of income during the adjunct stage of the career. Adjuncting should be just that, an adjunct to a career, another paycheck, not the primary paycheck. Otherwise, depression and despair ensue. If you have successfully completed a PhD, you have many skills. Teaching, number one, teaching. This does not have to be in the classroom. Training programs, tutoring high schoolers or college students, running book clubs, doing local lectures at libraries, training people in communication skills, all fall under the heading of teaching. And they're all things that someone with college teaching experience can easily do. Number two, writing, copywriting, blogging, journalism, research writing, ghostwriting, memoir, fiction, you name it. He wrote this gigantic dissertation, right? Well, you can manage a large writing project, and you can write to deadline. Number three, editing. How much editing did you do on your dissertation? A lot, right? You can edit other people's work, and there's always someone who needs something edited or proofread. Four, research. Five, project management. I don't even know what this word means, <laughs> actually, in many contexts. It just seems to be one of those business jargon terms that make job ads seem impenetrable, even to those with a PhD in English. What I think it means, though, is that you manage projects. Your dissertation was a project, a large one, in which you were responsible not for writing it, not only for writing it, but also for managing your team members, your dissertation committee, and incorporating feedback, navigating different types of personalities, maybe even conflict. All of this is relevant to project management in a corporation. Now, if I can only figure out how to maximize ROI, I'll be all set. Personally, I'm trying to stay away from the corporate world. I've applied for a few jobs over the last several years, but half-heartedly and desperately. Having a PhD can be a detriment to some jobs, and some will perceive you as overqualified. I don't like having a boss, and I'm trying hard to avoid situations where I'm expected to be in the same place every day listening to someone tell me what to do. For me, it means some adjuncting, and I've been fortunate enough to find a decent-paying gig with benefits where they treat me like a human being. Um, at U of M, as well as tutoring. I tutor high school kids in ACT, SAT, English, and French, as well as MCAT and GRE, the verbal sections, and my own writing, uh, realizing my lifelong dream of being a writer, both fiction and nonfiction. The first two pull in enough money to get by. The third is still kind of a dream, but I'll keep you updated on that because I'm hoping that, that, um, that the writing starts to phase out the tutoring at some point. So... We'll see about that. You might not have the personality or the ability to cobble together a career like this. It doesn't bother me too much, although there are lean times when I don't get enough teaching or the tutoring students are not plentiful or when the car breaks down. It's not as comfortable as I would like, but it can be if I use my strengths to piece together enough disparate sources of income. Um, and those, those are some of the sections on teaching and the situation of teaching. I know a lot of this is specific to people with PhDs and people in in, in higher ed. Uh, but I think it's applicable to everybody. You know, the idea of having multiple streams of income, of having different jobs, of having plan B, um, of not just taking what you're offered, you know, um, of trying to make something better, doing things for yourself. I think those are uh, lessons that are applicable kind of pretty widely to, to a lot of people. Like I said earlier, my situation teaching has changed a, a little bit, and uh, I do have some benefits and, and things like that. So, um, so it has changed, but it's it's a 
really tricky situation for a lot of people in higher ed. And a lot of students don't realize that. They don't realize that their instructors are making poverty level wages to, to teach them. Um, because to them, it's just, a it's whether you're a full-time tenure track professor, if you're on, if you have tenure or if you're an adjunct, you, you, it's all the same to them. You're just, you're a person in front of the room teaching them and you're the authority in the room and, and, um, for most adjuncts and tenure track professors, that's true. You're the expert in the room. <laughs> and, uh, you know, most of us are very, very capable of, of what we're doing. Um, but there's this huge disparity in, in pay that a lot of students don't realize. And a lot of, a lot of people in the, in the kind of real world don't, don't realize. Um, I'm going to do an episode on this actually, uh, completely on the adjunct situation, uh, hopefully in December. I'll give you more information about that as the time comes. I have a good interview lined up, I hope, for uh, of somebody who's an expert in this in this area. So that's exciting. Um, so, yeah. This is going to be a short podcast this week. But, um, again, if you like the solo cast, let me know. Uh, I know some of you do. I've heard that my voice is soothing. That was very nice. Thank you. Um you know, I enjoy getting the, I like reading the memoir because it, it helps me find places that I can iron out or things that I have to explain more <laughs> so I can revise it a little bit. Um, if you want to hear more of the personal stuff, I might be willing to read some of that on the podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, if you want to hear more about the teaching side or the writing side, let me know. I have, I have a lot more, uh, I have a lot more content on, on both of those. And once again, I would love to hear about your writing experiences about uh, NaNoWriMo. If you're a teacher, let me know. <laughs> Give me some horror stories about teaching, weird things you did or you've done or, uh, you know, things like that. Um, I'll assure you that the days of trying to get fired are over. <laughs> um, although giving my students a little bit of freedom is not over. I think that's a really important thing. But um, yeah, let me know what, what you think about that. Uh, you can go visit the blog and the, uh, and the show notes at ericmarshall.net. That's E-R-I-K, Marshall with two L's, dot net, slash wet for the podcast, uh, slash blog for the blog. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at emarsh, E-M-A-R-S-H. Uh, I like comments. Uh, if you listen on iTunes, please take a few seconds just give me a quick rating just give an honest rating would be nice uh just to just to have some up there and and to uh, let people know what this is all about yeah, if you listen elsewhere you can put in comments there as well i appreciate it and uh, thanks for listening to episode 10 i really appreciate it i'll see you next week